If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, focusing primarily on verse 15, uh, but we'll be using most of the first uh, 13 or so verses of Scripture as a basis. Uh, and the message today is entitled, The First Christmas Story. Now, if you were to uh, be asked by someone to tell uh, the story of Christmas, uh, I'm sure that you would begin with the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary that she would be the one through whom God would send his son, the promised Messiah, into the world uh, to be our Savior. I'm sure that you would include the dream that uh, uh, Joseph had uh, when he was uh, struggling with what to do about Mary because uh, uh, they were, in the eyes of their law, married, but they had not yet consummated that marriage relationship. And, and uh, so she would be accused of adultery and unfaithfulness. And he had the choice of either having her uh, put to death by, by stoning or else he could just write a, a secret uh, word of divorcement. And that, I believe, was what he was in the process of doing when uh, the angel appeared to him in a dream and encouraged him to not hesitate to go through with the marriage, that, that which was happening to Mary was of the Holy Spirit and was God's will. And so he did so. Uh, then you would probably include the, the journey uh, to uh, Bethlehem where they were to be registered again according to, the, to uh, Caesar's call and, and, and invitation and demand. Uh, that when they got there, they went to find room at the inn, but there was no room in the inn. Uh, ending up having to go to the stable where there the Christ child would be born. And then, of course, the angels appearing and uh, then eventually the wise men coming uh, to worship, uh, worship him. And, and you would be right in, in telling everything about uh, and other things that I've mentioned about uh, the Christmas story. Uh, but I'm not talking just about the Christmas story today. I'm talking about the very first Christmas story, the very, where it all began. To go back to the origin. Uh, and the root of the true Christmas story that I've just described for you and that the scriptures describe for you. And in order to do this, we need to go back to the beginning of time. We need to go back to shortly after the creation of the world, uh, where Adam and Eve had been placed in the Garden of Eden and where the devil came, Satan, Lucifer, the old enemy, the serpent, beguiled in his cunning, crafty ways, deceived Eve, into taking of the forbidden fruit and brought sin into the world and consequently the necessity of there being a savior to be born. So with that kind of as a, a background, let's look at Genesis chapter three and let me read the first 15 verses and then we'll focus our attention uh, on the message and the outline that you have in your bulletin for today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that is the serpent, now Lucifer, the devil, Satan is coming in this form of the serpent and using the serpent to speak to her. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin clothing. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. So it is that verse 15 that we want to focus our attention on this morning as we think about the first time the Christmas story was ever told. Genesis 3.15 is considered to be the first announcement, the first proclamation, the first gospel that Jesus Christ would come into the world to be our Savior. It is the first promise in the Bible. Everything else in the Bible, everything else, everything else in the Bible stems from this verse 15. Of chapter 3. Verse 15 is somewhat like an acorn. On the inside of the acorn is, is the potential of a huge oak tree. And so verse 15 is like an acre in that in that one verse is the whole message of the gospel. The whole message of the Bible is wrapped up in this one verse of verse 15. Although at first glance, when you read verse 15, you cannot see Christ. But when you look at it a little thoroughly, more thoroughly than normal, and you're reading behind the scenes and everything that is into it, not just reading into it, but reading out of it, you see Christ. It is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate seed of the woman whose heel would be crushed, but he would in turn crush the head of the serpent. This verse predicts that Jesus would win the victory over the devil and would win the victory over sin and death and the grave. So the first Christmas story begins with why. Why it was necessary for Jesus to be born. On your outline this morning, there are four basic ideas that we want to develop. And we begin with the first idea, which refers to the terrible plight of man. Adam and Eve, of course, are the mother and the father of the human race. The first man and the first woman that's created the image of God. It's interesting to note 
when you go on and read it, uh, other verse, uh, chapters and verses of Genesis, uh, that the first man uh, was created in the image of God, but then the children that were born between Adam and Eve and the rest of us, it says that we were created in the image of Adam, uh, not the Lord. Because Adam now was in a state of fallen condition and all of us are in that same state. Every one of us, every person born into this world, born in a fallen state. They were innocent at the beginning until they disobeyed God. There was nothing whatsoever in the fruit uh, that was the sin. There was no poison in the fruit or so to speak. The sin lay in the act of disobedience. God said, don't eat of this tree. Now the devil deceived. He said, Surely the Lord did not intend for you to not eat of every tree. Well, Eve corrected him. She was saying, in essence, that's true. We have access to all trees in the garden except for this one. God said not to eat of this tree. Oh, God God didn't really mean that. Uh, God really knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him. And so he was deceiving and lying right up front, and yet she fell for it, hook, line, and singer, uh, stinger. And so the first thing that we talk about in the terrible plot of man is that her sin and Adam's sin was caused by the deception of Satan. Look at verse, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse one, uh, verse two. The woman said to the servant, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the uh, tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat thereof or even touch it. Not only to not eat it, but to touch it. Touch it. Verse 1 says the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so he was crafty and cunning in his deception and in his attempt to deceive her. So man is in need of a savior because of sin. Adam and Eve were led to commit sin by deception. And you know, sin will do that. Temptation will do that. Temptation will will appear as though it's good and wholesome and it's okay to do so. But beneath and behind all of that as the deception, of course, the penalty and the consequences when we disobey God and do that which he's told us not to do. So the devil now is delighting in himself. He has caused problems for the Lord. He has demonstrated to the whole world that man is not ultimately going to obey God, that he will disobey the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, the apostle Paul says to the Christians at Corinth, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, by his cunningness, by his trickery, to trick Eve into, into doing something that would lead to her ruin, that would lead to the sin that she has committed. Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And so he is deceiving her. And Paul is concerned about the Christians at Corinth that they too will be deceived by false teachings that was being done by some of the false teachers and prophets of their day. You know, you need to be careful when you hear what we would consider as different doctrine and different thoughts that come from other people. Just because it comes from somebody that you may respect or just because it might come from somebody that has a a worldwide reputation doesn't necessarily mean that what they're teaching and what they're saying uh, is of the truth. You, You need to compare it to something. 
And what you need to compare what you're hearing other people saying is compare it to this book, the Bible. This is the truth of God. This is not like any other book in the whole wide world. It's greater than the Koran. It's greater than the Book of Mormons. It's greater than the uh, uh, Scientology books that they have. And so th- there's, this is the most unique book in the world. And it is divinely inspired. It is the truth of God. And we need to do what the Bereans did in the book of Acts, the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. We read about a group of people called the Bereans. And uh, Paul had been uh, uh, preaching and teaching about Jesus but, but they were not going to take Paul just at his word. You shouldn't take me just at my word. Uh, Paul calls unintentionally unannoying. I might say something that would mislead you. So, so don't just take me at my word. You take what God's word says. You compare what I say from this pulpit or anybody else from this pulpit says to you. You compare it with God's word. Does it measure up to what the Bible says? Listen to what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17 and verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So they received the word with eagerness, but they began, that, the, that is the words that Paul said, they, they welcomed him and they received what he was saying with eagerness. But then they began to take what Paul had said and compared it to the Old Testament scriptures to see if it all measured up. And that's what you need to do anytime you hear a doctrine that is different than what you've been taught from the scriptures, you need to compare it to what the Bible says, not what man or men say, or else you'll be deceived. And so this is what happened to Eve. She did not necessarily listen to or believe what God said. She was deceived. But it was caused by the deception of Satan and it resulted in the sin of Adam and Eve. Chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. Chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. See, that's what he was saying. He wasn't prohibiting them from eating all of the, from the other trees. He said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Just enjoy it. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. But then you come to chapter 3. Verse 7, of course, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse 11, the Lord says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? So their act of disobedience and doing what God told them not to do was what caused them to sin. And the Bible says that uh, when they sinned, it was like opening Pandora's box, as we would say. They opened the door whereby through one person's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, they brought sin into the world. And so not only were they sinful, but they affected the entire uh, world, mankind. On the eve of World War I in 1914, A British statement by the name of Lord Grey said, 
the lamps are going out all over Europe and we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. So on the eve of World War I, the lights of freedom were going out all over Europe. He said, well, when Adam and Eve sinned by taking the fruit and disobeyed God, they brought darkness into the world. Uh, in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, in Matthew 4 and verse 16, he says, he quotes Isaiah 9 two, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. So mankind is sitting in the darkness of sin but God has sent the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, to shine. And the Bible says that we've all sinned. Listen to this, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned, not just a few, not just one or two, not just a nation or a group of people. All, A-L-L, that includes you, that includes me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 12. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. When a person dies... The death certificate may list, well, they died of some incurable disease or maybe they died by the results of an accident of some kind. Uh, so there is a physical and a medical explanation for death, but they leave off a line. We all sin as a result of death. Uh, uh, we all die as a result of sin. Sin is what causes you to die. If it were not for sin, you'd live forever. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why we'll see in a moment, God forced them to leave the Garden of Eden because if they, there's another tree there, the tree of life, and had they taken of the fruit of the tree of life, they would have continued to live forever, but in a fallen state. There would have never been any chance for them to be saved. Wouldn't be any chance for us to be saved if they had been left there in the Garden of Eden. And so it just spread to the whole world. First John 1, 8 and verse 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say that we have no sin in us, we call God a liar. Because God says you have sinned. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the terrible plight of mankind. And that's why Jesus came into the world. Notice the second thing. Not only the terrible plight of man, but the compassionate heart of God. Look at chapter 3 of Genesis, how God came searching for Adam and for Eve. It says, if you'll notice please, in verse 8 of chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Now it says that they heard the sound of him walking. Often thought it was the voice of him. Of course he spoke, but it was the sound. Evidently they had enjoyed a, a, a time of fellowshipping with the Lord all along. Uh, they were in, in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God created the whole world first. And then after he created the world, then he created this garden. And, and when, uh, before he created the garden, he created man. He created man out of the ground. Then he put him in the Garden of Eden. When he expelled him, as we'll see in a moment, he took him out of the Garden of Eden and put him back in the ground from whence he came. And, and so there's this compassion of God. He comes walking in the cool of the garden and, and he does call out to them, Adam, where are thou? I've told you many times, it wasn't that God didn't know where they were. It wasn't that God didn't know what they had done. He didn't ask that question for their sake. He, for his sake, he asked it for their sake. 
They needed to understand now their fellowship between him and them was not any longer. It wasn't the same. It never would be the same again. Sin broke up that fellowship. Sin separated them from God. And they needed to understand that now, having disobeyed the Lord, they were sinners. Where are you now, having disobeyed my voice and my command? Now look what's happened. Now look at the condition that you are in. And, of course, the answer was, well, we were afraid. We heard your voice. You know, that was the first result of sin. The first result of sin was fear. They were afraid of God. The first message of the birth of Jesus Christ from the angels was, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Jesus takes away the fear. You don't have to be afraid of God. God loves you and he cares about you and he wants to have fellowship with you and he wants to live with you for all eternity. And so God searched for Adam and Eve just as he searches for you and for me. They ran from God, but now we can run to God. So God searched for Adam and Eve, and God made provisions for Adam and Eve. Look at verse 20. Go to verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21. Having uh, conversed with them about the sin that they'd committed and the results of that sin, not only for Adam, but Eve, and also for the serpent, Satan. But now in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, their futile attempt, Adam's was, was to gather some leaves and put them together in some way in order to form aprons to cover their nakedness, but it was inadequate. You know, only what God can provide will be adequate to cover your sins. Uh, Adam and Eve tried to cover up their sin. God covers. There's a difference. To cover up means that you've done something bad and you're afraid God's going to find out or, or you, you did something bad and you're afraid that somebody, family or the boss or somebody at work, they're going to find out what you did. So you try to cover it up, hide it. That's what Adam and Eve were trying to do. They, they thought they could hide from God and cover up. God didn't try to cover it up. He exposed it for what it was. But then he provided a covering. Now, where did that covering come from? Well... Only through the shed blood is forgiveness. And so that means that some animal somewhere uh, in the Garden of Eden had to die. Where else would he have gotten it? Because it says he took the skin of an animal and used it to, to cover their nakedness. So some animal in the garden had to have died. Blood had to have been shed in order for their sins to be covered. What animal it was, it doesn't state so in the book of Genesis. But I tend to believe that it was a lamb. Because you go back and to search the scriptures and, and uh, what did uh, the Lord say to Moses? You go tell the people the night that the death angel comes, what are you supposed to do? Take a lamb, slay it, take the blood, smear it over the top of the doorpost and on the sides. And when the death angel sees the blood, it will pass over uh, that, uh, that door and the death angel will not enter in. So uh, you go on in the scriptures, there are other places in the, uh, New Testament in the observance of the Lord's Supper. They were to take a lamb and slay it and so forth and the blood was there. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So I, I have no scriptural basis on which to say this, but I just tend to believe that, that, uh, that the animal that God took was a lamb to symbolize the future lamb of God. Remember, John the Baptist pointed Jesus out. Behold, the lamb of God that was taken away from the sin of the world. So I tend to believe that it was a lamb. Uh, that God took 
and used the skin after having shed the blood and used it to cover their nakedness. And he, he, he provided uh, this for them. And then notice God's expulsion of Adam and Eve. Notice in verse 24. Well, look at verse 23. Uh, we're still in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So you see the ground, and that's why I said a while ago that he wasn't taken out of the ground that was considered the Garden of Eden. He was taken out of the ground uh, of the earth that God created at the beginning. See, God created the world first, then he created the Garden of Eden. So it was out of the world's ground that he took the dirt and made man, put him in the Garden of Eden. Now he's taking him out of the Garden of Eden, sent him out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And then notice in verse 24, it says, so he drove the man out. Now, that, that's always kind of bothered me a little bit, that, to say that God drove him out. That's kind of harsh. But you have to remember the condition that Adam and Eve were in. Uh, this was a matter of life and death. And again, the scripture says, the Lord says to the Trinity, not just to the angels, you know, the Trinity, when God said, let us make man in our image. He wasn't talking to angels. Remember, we love and serve and know that there's only one God, but there's God, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when, I, when it says that God said to them, let us make man in our image, we're not made in the image of angels. We were made in the image of God. And so he was saying to himself and to the other persons of the Godhead. And, and, and so now he is saying, if, if, you, if you, in your fallen condition, reach out and take of the fruit of the tree of life and eat of it, you will never die. You will continually live in a state of sin and condemnation and misery. And I believe that had they taken of that tree of the life, they would still be alive today. We would still see them walking around because they would never have died. And you and I would never, the point is that you and I would forever, all eternity, live in a state of a fallen condition. We would be in a sinful condition from which we could never be redeemed. Just think about the evil that is going on in the world today and multiply it throughout all eternity. That's what life would be like for us on this earth had God not driven them, drove them out of the Garden of Eden. And it would suggest that his having to drive them out of the garden would be that Adam and Eve were reluctant to go. I mean, would you not have been? I mean, just imagine the Garden of Eden, paradise. Wouldn't you like to have stayed in the, wouldn't you like to, oh God, I'm sorry, I apologize for what I did. And God would say, well, that's okay. I didn't really mean what I said. And so you can just stay. No, God says out. You've got to go. Well, we don't want to go. Yes, you're going, whether you like it or not. And he drove them out for their own good. That's hard to realize, hard to say, and, and hard to accept, but that's why he did it, for their own good. Just like you say to your child when they do something wrong and you punish them, and if you spank them, you say, well, this is for your own good. That's hard for a child to understand, you know, and especially when they say, well, this is going to hurt me more, it's going to hurt you. Yeah, sure. No. We don't discipline our children because we hate them. We discipline because we love them. To not punish your child or discipline them when they do wrong is in essence to say, I don't love you. You're free to get by with whatever you want to do. And boy, that's going on in the world today. God forbid that we would spank a child because they do something wrong. So that's another apple, I'm sorry. 
The garden, whatever happened to the Garden of Eden? Well, I don't know. I can speculate. I think when God flooded the world, I think the Garden of Eden stayed in existence until God flooded the world. And when God flooded the world, he changed the whole geographical complex of, of the earth. And the Garden of Eden was destroyed. Now, the Tree of Life, oh, it's still in existence. Because when you come to the Bible, into the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, you know, the Bible begins with man in a garden. It ends with man in a garden. And in the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, it says that, that one of the visions that John had of the holy city in New Jerusalem, he said it was like a garden. That out from underneath the throne flowed the river of the water of life. And there was the tree of life and trees on both sides. And the leaves of the tree of, uh, was for the healing of the nations and for food and for refreshment. So when we come back to the end of the Bible and when we get to paradise, the tree of life is still going to be there. And it's still going to be available to us. And we will enjoy its fruit through all eternity, but in a different state. So God had compassion. He searched for them. He provided for them. And now he's sending them as an act of mercy, really, to get out and away. Notice the third thing, and that is the divine announcement of conflict. Conflict. Genesis 3.15, war was declared. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. So when did this rebellion start? Well, it started, of course, with Satan. When did it all start? It started in heaven. Well, when did it start here on the earth? Sometime between the end of creation that God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the time at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, somewhere in between there. Because why? That, that, that Lucifer became Satan. Because when God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, what does it say that his opinion of what he created was? And God did this and he saw it. It's good. Did this and said, it's good. It's good. It's good. When he created man, it's very good. God would not have pronounced the sin of Lucifer that made him Satan. Uh, he would not have said that was good. So it had to have happened sometime before Lucifer rebelled and became Satan. And then entered the Garden of Eden to deceive Adam and Eve. But war was declared. God said enmity, hostility, hatred would now exist in the world between uh, the devil and uh, Adam and Eve. So we are at war. When Theodore Roosevelt uh, on December 1941, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, declared uh, that we were now in a state of war and got a declaration of war from Congress, uh, that we would enter World War II, in essence, what the Lord is saying, and it's God, not the devil, it's God who is saying, now there will exist conflict between us there will be a feud. There will be hostility. We are at war. And we are. We are at war. It's the mother of all wars, if you please, that we are involved in. Ray Stedman, the late Red Stedman, said, It's time we who believe in the Lord Jesus accept the fact that life is warfare and that we are engaged in a life and death struggle. 
Warren Wiersbe said, sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. So the New American Standard says enmity. The New Living Bible says hostility. The Moffat translation says there is a feud going on. The good news paraphrase says, I will make you and the woman hate each other. Her offspring and yours will always be enemies. Always. Until the day Jesus Christ returns to this earth, you read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there is war and conflict and hatred and battles going on until Jesus Christ returns in victory. Ishmael, oh Ishmael. You remember God promised to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son and that through that son would come the blessed Messiah. But Abraham got impatient Years had passed since that promise had been made and still Sarah could not have a child. And so finally Sarah said, well, you go into my handmaid and, uh, and have a child by him and then God will fulfill his promise. And so uh, Abraham foolishly disobeyed and, and, and took uh, Sarah's uh, uh, maiden and, and uh, had a child by her and his name was Ishmael. And um, immediately there was a conflict between Sarah and uh, uh, Hagar, who was Ishmael's mother. And uh, uh, Sarah and Hagar just battled each other. They, she, they hated each other. Sarah hated because now, although she said to Abraham, go into Hagar and have a child by her, uh, now she's, she's filled with, with hate and envy and, and, uh, and misery. And, and she makes life miserable for Hagar. She leaves, but then God says to her, come back. I will make of your son, Ishmael, a great nation. And, and Ishmael is the father of, of the um, Muslim world, the Muslim world. And when, when uh, Ishmael and, and uh, uh, Isaac were growing up together, they were constantly fighting one another, constantly fighting one another, hating one, hating one another, at en enemies with one another. Finally, Ishmael goes off on his own. And, uh, and the Bible says of, of him in Genesis 16 and verse 12, listen to this. Genesis 16, 12, talking about Ishmael now. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all of his brothers. To go to the east would in essence be to say to get away from God. Just get away from the Lord. And it says that he was everybody's enemy. Ishmael did not get along with anybody, not even his own family. Listen to how other translations call him this wild donkey of a man. In the New Living Translation, it says, This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. The Holman Christian Study Bible says this man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with all his brothers. The Knox translation says he shall be a nature. He shall be a nature none can tame, hating all and hated by all. The descendants of Ishmael, which are now the Muslim people, in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 25 says that Ishmael, when it came time for him to die, settled in defiance with all of his relatives. Even to his dying day, he couldn't get along with his own kin. 
The NIV says his descendants lived in hostility toward all brothers until the day that he died. So the conflict that began way back then because Abraham got impatient waiting for God to fulfill the promise started a war that is still going on to this day. And everything that you see happening in the Muslim world and the Islamic faith and the hatred that they have and calling you an infidel because you don't believe what they teach in the Koran. All started way back there with Ishmael and Isaac and Hagar and Sarah. They're still fighting to this day and they're bringing us into it. We are at war spiritually. That's why the Apostle Paul over the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians says that this war is going on. Five times in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11, 12, he uses the word against, 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 against. The same thing that was going on with Ishmael. We are at war. Paul said to young Timothy, fight the good fight. And when he came to the time of his death, Paul says, I have fought a good fight. So we're at war, folks, and we will be until Jesus comes back. But then notice this fourth thing. That in spite of all that had been done, God was gracious to send a deliverer. And the deliverer came in the form of Jesus. And so you have the incarnation of Jesus. The word incarnation means, of course, in the flesh. Now the serpent was the source of ruin. The seed of the woman was the source of redemption. It was through Eve's deception that sin came into the world, it will be through Mary's conception that redemption would come into the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you have the incarnation is seen in his seed. When Gabriel announced to Mary, you're going to have a child. Well, how can this be? I've never known a man. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and uh, will, you'll conceive. Now, I don't believe that there was a, a sexual intercourse relationship between the Holy Spirit and Mary. But if you go back in the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, earth without form and void. Darkness covered the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. What does all that mean? Just that the Holy Spirit brought about a miracle in some way of bringing everything into existence. And I, I don't know, this is just read speculation and I admit it up front that uh, and compare it to the scriptures, don't, don't take my word for it, but it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And I think that somehow as the Holy Spirit came upon the earth and, and brought it into existence that somehow or another he hovered over Mary and enabled her through the power. It was miraculous. The birth of Jesus, I said to you before, it was not the birth that was miraculous. It was the conception. The conception. That had to be the miracle. She, she did not know a man sexually. She could not have gotten pregnant that way without having had a, a sexual relationship with a male. And so it had to be the power of God. It had to be the power of the Holy Spirit in some way hovering over her and making it all possible. And so you have the incarnation. Then you have the death of Jesus. Genesis 3.15, you shall bruise him on the hill. Now, have you ever had a hill spur? Have you ever pulled your Achilles tendon? If so, then you know how painful that can be. 
We normally don't think about hills until we start having problems. But what happens? Well, you end up on crutches. You take painkillers and perhaps have surgery. Hill troubles will slow you down, but it won't kill you. You can live with hill problems even though you have to hobble around. When our text says that he, spelled with a little h, will strike the hills of his hill, spelled with a capital H, of course, then he was talking about the death of Calvary. And so the, the devil crushed his hill on, on the cross of Calvary, uh, but Christ crushed his head. How do you kill a snake? Well, you've heard me tell that many, many times. You, you, when you kill a snake, you don't chop his tail off. You, you, you take a shovel and you beat his little tiny brains out. <laughs> you cut his head off up right beneath his ears. You kill him by crushing his head. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He killed. We say, well, why are you still running around? Like a chicken with his head cut off, I guess. I don't know. Well, Satan is, yes, he's still loose. He still seems to be doing evil after all of these years. But the answer is that at the cross, Satan was judged and sentence was pronounced. The answer is that he's now free to roam the earth awaiting his final execution. He knows that his time is limited. He knows what the end results will be. And he's trying to take as many of us with him as he possibly can. Jesus baffled Satan's temptation. He rescued souls out of his hands. He cast him out of the bodies of people. He disposed the strong man armed and divided the spoils. And by his death, Jesus gave a final and incurable blow to the devil's kingdom. Now I've got to finish this. So let me take you, take your hymn books. We're not going to sing this song, but I want to show you something. The song that we started off with this morning. Turn to page 88. Hark the herald angels sing. Beautiful song, love it. Our choir, beautiful choir, led us in the beginning of our worship service with this song. Look at it, page 88. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time beholding him come, Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the heavenly born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now there's something missing in this song, but you'd never know it unless I told you about it. There's a stanza that's missing. The fourth stanza 
is missing from this song. I get so upset with those who put our hymn book together because they start cutting out things and hymns that we sing that should be there. Some of the greatest theology that belongs in this song is not there. I had to go back to a hymn book that was printed in 1933 to get the fourth stanza of this song. Listen to this. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. They left out Genesis 3.15 in the fourth stanza. God sending his only begotten son to bruise the hill, to bruise the head of the serpent and give us victory. And that's why we can sing glory to God and to the newborn king. Let's pray together. If you're here today and you've never experienced what is called the new birth, you've never been saved You've never realized that you are a sinner. You know, that was the first thing God had to, Adam and Eve needed to see, that, that they had sinned, that they, they had broken God's commandment. They disobeyed God. And, and, and you and I, we do that every day, don't we? We sure do. We disobey God. God says don't. And we say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. You're hiding something from me. No, it's for your own good. God will only take that away from you which will do you harm. God loves you and he cares for you. and He provides for you. And so he says to you today, you need to realize that you've sinned. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to admit to yourself and to God that you are a sinner and that there's nothing that you can do, no, no good deed, you can't do enough good deeds. You don't deserve forgiveness. And yet God loves you. And he's provided a way, just as he provided a way for Adam and Eve to be forgiven. It was through the shed blood of some animal from which he took a, a clothing, a skin, that he could adequately cover their sins. Your attempt to cover your sins is futile and unacceptable. It is only by the shedding of blood that there can be forgiveness of sin. And Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his own precious blood so that you might be forgiven so that your sins could be washed away and you receive that forgiveness and cleansing when you admit that you have sinned and you invite Jesus Christ into your heart and ask him to save you. So if you're here this morning and you want to be saved and never have done it so, just repeat this prayer, either out loud or just in your, in your own heart. Just say, Lord Jesus, I admit to you I am a sinner and I'm not capable to save myself. Please forgive me of my sin. I acknowledge that you are God's son. I believe that you died on the cross in my place, that you died so that I could be forgiven. And I'm asking you now, Lord Jesus, to please come into my heart and save me. I accept you and I trust you and I 
commit myself to you. I depend on you and you alone for my salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for me. For it's in your name I pray. Amen. And if you have prayed that prayer that way this morning for the first time, welcome to the kingdom of God. You haven't joined the church, you haven't been baptized, haven't done anything like that. You've just trusted Christ as your Savior. That's what makes you a Christian. The next step, of course, is to make it public. Uh, Jesus says there's joy in heaven over the one repenter who, who repents and, and, and receives his son. And so we want to rejoice with the angels in heaven and knowing that you've trusted Christ. So we give an opportunity to come and make it public. Don't ever be ashamed to let people know that you're a Christian, that you've trusted Christ. Jesus said, confess me before men. I'll confess you before my father. When we get to heaven, I'll say, I'm proud to know him. I died for him. He's my son. And he'll do that for you when you stand in the presence of God. So you're willing to do it now. He'll do it then. So that's why we give an invitation up in the balcony, maybe in the lower auditorium or here in this room today. God's speaking to you, the Holy Spirit leading you. Andre's going to lead us. Let's all stand and you come, please.